You're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Giovanna Figueroa from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Giovanna. Hey there. How's it going? It's going. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Great. We're really interested in hearing about your research. So you do field work in the Amazon rainforest, right? Yeah, that's true. I do field work in Peru and my home base when I'm there is Iquitos. That's really cool. What are you what are you looking at? So I'm focusing my research on a genus of palm trees, Onocarpus. And specifically I'm um, focusing on Onocarpus Batawa, which is a really abundant palm tree in the Amazon. So it's the seventh most abundant tree in the Amazon basin, and it, it spans like Northern South America. So I'm really interested in, I guess, like kind of people plant interactions and also tropical ecology in general. So I like, I want to understand floristic um, abundance and diversity patterns, and also how humans might have influenced these patterns. So something interesting about this palm tree is that its fruit is really nutritious and it's, it's used to make uh, uh, like this beverage it's called Chapo de Ungurawi and it's just like macerated uh, pulp with some water and sometimes um, folks will add some sugar also. Cool, okay, so you're studying this, this palm tree that grows throughout the Amazon rainforest um, and you're mostly focused on how people interact with it? Um, that's like, that's a component of it. So I, I wanna look at the like finer scale like variation of this palm tree. So I, when I do my field work, I'm collecting a lot of fruit specimens and leaf specimens um, to do some molecular work um, to like understand like the population level structuring. And I'm- What do you mean by um, population level structuring? Oh, so I want to see if there's any, like, how much, I guess, structuring there, like, genetic structuring there is between populations. So I visit different communities um, along different river um, rivers in the Amazon. And um, I'm just, I'm, I want to, like, compare the genetic structuring to see if there's, like, any sort of, like, distinct genetic um, differences between these different populations along different rivers. But I'm also um, recording uh, morphological variation in the fruits. So this it can be with related to like the size, the weight, but specifically the pulp color. So I found fruits that are like a really deep purple, some that are white, and then some that are like some like intermediate pinkish version of that. And then there are some where the pulp looks like it's like essentially rotted. But when I talk to people, they're like, this is the best one for oil content. So you wouldn't expect that because it looks really dry, but apparently it had it's really rich in oil content. So that's a lot of variation I'm looking at. Um, okay, cool. Okay, so this is one species of palm tree, um, but you're looking to see if there's just happens to be differences genetically and morphologically across this range. And I guess it's kind of like. Um, like how a lot of agricultural plants, like you see big differences in the way their fruits and different parts of their vegetative structures look, like that's kind of like what you're looking at in this palm tree? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's correct. And I'm also, I, 
I'm looking across the genus also, just so I have like a baseline to do evolutionary like comparisons, I suppose. So I'm not just looking at this one specific species, I'm looking at other related species, which are also also like produce fruit that's like similar in nutritional content. Some are also used to make beverages similar to the Chapo de Ungurawi, but they're not as popular. And so I'm like curious to see if um, there's like significant differences in the nutrition of these like lesser used fruits or if maybe they're just not as popular because they're not as abundant. So you, you're saying that people just don't see them as much, so they don't go to them, basically? Yeah, essentially. I, I don't know if that's why they're not as used, because they're not as encountered, or if they're actually just not as great of a food source. And I'm, I'm curious to like, um, kind of explore that realm of my research um, to like kind of also understand if people have influenced the geographic distribution of Onocarpus batawa, this really, really abundant one, whether it's um, being used as much because it's been so abundant, it's so abundant, or if like somehow through like migration and past human management, this species has um, benefited from that and become more abundant. Right. Okay. So that's interesting. So I guess when you first started talking about it, it kind of seemed like this was, we were talking about just kind of a wild plant, but is it kind of going undergoing cultivation? Like people are... There's no, there's no evidence of like it being actively domesticated. Some folks consider it like incipient domestication where it's just kind of like a byproduct of human presence. So what I've noticed is that um, when people go collect harvest this fruit they just go into the like surrounding forest to harvest it but they don't actively plant it however like um you know as you're walking through the forest and eating the fruits you can drop the seeds and it will grow and then when i see folks who are working their their chakras their their plots of lands where they have their own like crop rotations for for food if there is one of these palm trees growing on in that plot of land they won't chop it down they'll just like let it be because it takes a while for these to start um producing fruits so it's more beneficial to just like leave it there but it's actually pretty difficult for it's difficult for them to just start growing in like full sun areas and so a lot of these like agricultural plots um are not shaded in their full sun so you're, these plants kind of have to be growing before people have moved in to like actually farm is what you're saying I see yeah that's interesting yeah um in the Amazon is farming generally how we think of it in the U.S. or you know like uh people go in and clear a forest and then plant crops or do people kind of try to integrate into the existing ecosystem to grow? Because I assume a lot of the useful crops that would come out of the Amazon kind of work well in the natural ecosystem. Yeah, I think there's like a, a big spectrum of agricultural systems in the Amazon. And so like where I, where like the places I visit specifically, um, what I notice is that folks have like an area of land that they just, they work and that's their area of land, and they will just rotate through crops seasonally. 
um, but it's not like a huge chunk of land and it's not monoculture like what we see here. So it's like, it's kind of like mixed in um, diff- a few different crops. There might be some yucca or like there, there'll be plantains or something. And it's just kind of like all integrated. And then they like when that plot of land has kind of becomes like nutrient deficient, um, they'll just like burn it, let it rest for a bit and it'll like regenerate into a second forest over time and they'll move to like a second plot but then they can go like switch off between these like new and like the secondary growth that they're letting regeneration happen. Okay so how much of your research would you say is actually interacting with uh, local um, people in the Amazon who are farmers or who just happen to live there and can guide you around and things like that? Quite a bit I'd say. So I go to a lot of different communities and every time I go, I, um, I have to like present my like research ideas to either like the community members or the whole community. Each, each place has like their own protocols of like what is, um, standard. And so I always have to like, uh, make sure that I have the permission from locals to actually carry on my work. And I always, hire like a local guide to take me to the palm trees or like areas where they know that these palm trees grow. I I learn a lot just like in my interactions. Like for example, when I was telling you about the Poroto variety, um, the one that looks like it's like rotted, but is actually really high in oil content. Like I I wouldn't have known that otherwise. And folks are just like, oh yeah, this is, this is good for this, you know? So um, just like in my like conversations, I learn a lot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Is that um is that trick the that this kind of rotted looking fruit something that was specific to a like local area or was that kind of like commonly known throughout the places you're looking? I think it's I think a few folks like when I t- like start talking to more people like here and there in different communities they're like, "Oh yeah, those." I think it is kind of known, but it this variety isn't like really good for the for making like beverages, the chapo. So people usually just let this one like stay on the tree or they know this tree does not give good fruits. So like, we're not going to collect them. So like right. some people are just like, yeah, that's not good for like what we're looking for. The, the, the beverage is like what, like the, one of the main uses of this, of these fruits, the oil is like secondary, but in some places I, I'm guessing like the oil is really popular. But once I start talking to other people, they're like, yeah, yeah, those are really like fatty and oily, not great for beverage, but good for like, oil okay so what what is this beverage exactly like what uh what are people drinking it for or is it just kind of like a good drink it's just a good drink um yeah but it's i find it kind of rich and a lot of people like don't don't drink a like they'll drink a lot of it but they're like cautious to not drink too much of it like too close to like bedtime because it's like heavy so it's it's just like this fruit you let the fruits soak in warm water to kind of soften them up a bit and then you macerate everything and you have this like mixture of pulp and seeds and and so what folks do is they'll like remove the seeds and then pass this pulp with some water through like a sieve and then you have this like really like thick mixture of like water and pulp and you can thin it out by adding more water you can add some sugar to it to make it a little sweet but on its own it's pretty it's like creamy and 
I'd say it's like nutty tasting and it's it's really good it's just like like I say it's heavy because it's really like fatty and protein rich so it's like a really great source of nutrition it's actually a complete protein it's like it's important for the local like just like subsistence level economy but what's being seen now is that it's um we're starting to see these fruits like move out of the local communities into cities and folks are like making ice creams or just like other yummy beverages or candies out of these fruits. So it's being kind of commercialized, you would say? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's like being integrated into like a larger economy. So that's something else that's kind of interesting because there's like a higher demand for the fruits now. A lot of folks um, have turned to like felling trees to collect fruits instead of climbing palm trees, which mm-hmm. is like the traditional and like I guess you could argue more sustainable, less destructive way of harvesting. I don't really know what the implications of that are. That's something that I want to explore, but I think that's going to come later in my research, just kind of understanding like what exactly is over harvesting of a dominant tree? Like what is the role of a dominant tree in the Amazon? Does something else take over, like fill in its place? Or is this actually not that, destructive, um, which I don't believe is the answer, but I'm, I'm not sure right now. When I do my research, I I um, partnered with this this local fruit pulp company, processing company, Recursos um, Amazonicos Frutales, Frasac, and it's based in Iquitos, and they've developed this um, specialized climbing system. It's like a harness with two loops and um, two like, loops for your feet. And it allows you to essentially just like walk up the palm trunk and you can, uh, it's really easy and it's safe. Um, and you can just like get up to the trunk in, if you're really good, pro- like five minutes, uh, it takes me a little longer. <laughs> and then you just um, cut a mature raceme of fruits instead of having to like cut the whole tree down and you lose a lot of potential like future fruits, you know? Right. Um, because the tree is going to put out the fruit like every year? It's kind of continuously putting out fruit. And there's not like a real understood pattern of like when it's like fruiting period is. And there's a lot of like variation between populations also. Like every place I have visited, except for one community, I have always found ripe fruits. And I've visited at like different times of the year because that's just how I can visit so yeah they're kind of continuously producing fruits and like most individuals it's like there will be like one racing with really ripe fruits there will be a green racing that will probably be ready like next year and then there's like a little bud that will be a racing in a year also or something like that right it's like an abundant source of really nutritious food (laughs) it's always producing yeah so okay so you go into you fly into Peru right and then you have to just get yourself around to different communities that are kind of in remote areas in the rainforest how what is that like yeah that's that's tough so I'm really lucky that my my advisor Paul Fine he has been working in Iquitos for like over 20 years so he has a really great network of collaborators and folks that he's yeah, just worked with over the years. So I'm able to uh, meet with those people when I get to Iquitos. 
and they kind of help me out. So like I will like before I start my river travel, I I like like sit down and like ask for their advice on like where they recommend would be a good place to go. Like just telling them like this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a place that has Onocarpus batawa. I'm also looking for a place that has Onocarpus mapora. Like where are some areas where you have seen this, and like what are some like good base communities that um, you think I can like go to and um, find folks to help take me to these places. So yeah, that's like my first step when I arrive to Peru. And then once that is done, oftentimes I'll try to establish contact before I go to these communities. But sometimes that's really difficult because like some places there's like one cell phone for the whole community and like um, there might not be great cell phone reception or like whoever whoever has a hold of the cell phone, like maybe is on a fishing trip and can't answer. So sometimes it's difficult. So I'll, I'll either keep trying to contact folks or like send word of mouth through the rivers. Just be like, oh yeah, like I'll meet someone like at one place and then I'll be like, find out that this person is going to keep traveling. And I'll be like, oh, if you stop in this community, will you just like kind of give folks a heads up that I am interested in working and will like probably be showing up in a week. Uh, <laughs> Wow, that's that's really interesting. So when you say river travel, you mean you're on a boat or yeah. yeah? Let's see. What I usually do is when I leave Iquitos, I will either have like try to coordinate with someone from the fruit pulp company to take me to like a large, larger like central community in the river, and then from there I'll organize like I'll like hire someone with a smaller boat to start taking me further out. Or sometimes I'll take like a public transportation or like a public boat. Um, there are like so many different varieties. Like I can take a fast one that'll get me there like relatively faster. I can take a slow one if I like feel like I have time and it's like an overnight river trip and I just hang a hammock and can like sleep and it's more comfortable because we're not like crammed together. Yeah, and then I just show up somewhere and uh, like ask around and find someone who can um, who's willing to take me to my next site. And people are pretty friendly about it. They're, you you don't really, you kind of always have somebody that'll help you when you get to these places? Yeah, I usually do. So I, at least for like my, like wherever that first place is, I know I like, I go with like a name or like someone in mind that I'm looking for specifically, or like people from Ravsak already know folks there and they'll go with me and like, we'll like ask and if that person can't, they'll be like, oh, but like, you know, my neighbor probably can. So then we'll go ask the neighbor. And as long as like I'm paying for the gas and like also like paying for the services, like people are happy to help me get to okay. places. <laughs> so you have to, I guess, tell people a plan, right? Before you start these trips. But how often would you say that plan is actually what happens on the ground? Yeah, I'd say like maybe like 80% of the time that's what happens. Sometimes I have to switch the community site or like whatever. Like I thought there was going to be trees like immediately outside of this forest. And they're like, no, we have to actually go like 30 minutes up the river or something. So, but I mean, it's not like a huge change in plans. Right. Um, Well, except for this past year, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. It was like probably the, the like most unexpected of my trips. Yeah, so obviously this past year, uh, the issue was COVID-19. So like what happened uh, while you were in on uh, location? What was going on? 
I had planned for a two week trip down the Nanai River, which is pretty like easy. I've traveled on the Nanai many times, so I didn't think it was going to be a huge deal. Um, but I was going further than I ever had. Um, so I made it about like it was a 16 hour boat ride to this community called Puka Urco. And I was able to get all my collections done and everything. And then just by chance, um, one night someone had turned on their TV and um, heard that there is like a lockdown in place for COVID-19. So all, all like travel, like ground and uh, fluvial, like river travel was like suspended. And they told me that and I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> And, and like in my head I was just like I don't know how you like shut down river travel like that doesn't make sense especially a lot of folks like fish on the rivers like that like this is how people get their food like I don't know how like you stop this but luckily I had this GPS that um, the field safety office let me borrow and I was able to contact Paul my advisor and I just sent him a message and I was like hey I am hearing this stuff I don't know what this means can you like do some research and let me know because I couldn't get a hold of um, Julie, who's this other grad student from Princeton that I usually do a lot of, we try to coordinate our field work to overlap. We, everything was just like still like really uncertain. So I was like, okay, I think maybe I should like make my way back to Iquitos. And I got really lucky and I found a, a team of medical workers that was in Puka Urco. They were doing malaria tests and they were going to head back down the river towards Iquitos. And so I asked them if if it would be possible for myself and um, Shappy, my field assistant, to like get a ride with them. And they, they were like, yeah, of course. So they like took us pretty far down the river up to like right before the first, where the first river checkpoint would be. So my plan was the following day was to like go to the river checkpoint and like talk to the national police who were there and just kind of like explain my situation and try to see if like I could get back to Iquitos. But before I could do that, the national police showed up to this town, Yamante Azul, where I was, and were like, and just kind of like went door to door and just said, "This community is on a full lockdown. Um, <laughs> you can't leave." I was there for almost two, or like to the end of the lockdown, because it was only supposed to be until the end of the month or something. But while this was all happening, I was like finally able to contact Julie, and she was like, "The U.S. is like trying to like." plan a uh, like repatriation flight you have to get to Iquitos and I was just like I don't know how I'm gonna get to Iquitos I have to pass two checkpoints like the military police showed up at the door and said I can't leave like yeah. I want to get arrested um, what happened <laughs> I like went to the first checkpoint they weren't gonna let me go unless I had like proof that my name was like on a Roth or like, yeah, a manifest sheet, a flight manifest. And I was like trying to like get in contact, like send WhatsApp messages to the embassy so they can send me a PDF. But like, it just wasn't working out. And then Shappy was able to talk to the police officer. And then I'm not sure what happened, but they let me go. <laughs> so we made it through like the first checkpoint to a little town that was like like maybe like two hours from that checkpoint. And um, from there, Shappy had been able to contact someone that he had worked with before who he knew had a boat and would be willing to take us to Iquitos. And the, this man was like, yeah, 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 I'll take you all to Iquitos, but I'm not gonna be able to take you until tomorrow. And I thought that was fine. 
but then I got a call from Julie saying like the flight's leaving tomorrow at 10 a.m you have to be here and I was like okay I don't know if that's gonna happen so like I talked to the the boat driver and I was like asking him if it would be possible to leave like immediately and he's like no we can't because of the curfew and the checkpoint like we have to leave tomorrow or we have to leave at night and um there is a curfew that started at I think at eight um and it was like from eight to like five in the morning and so like at seven the man comes up to my like our our like little campsite and he was like we should just leave now. And I was like, I was really scared because I was like, well, the curfew's about to start and I am not Peruvian. And if I like, I don't want any of us to get caught, but like I, I like from what I've heard from my friends in Iquitos is that like the consequences uh, for being like breaking this curfew, especially if you're not a c- citizen are like much more severe. But I, at the same time, I was like, this is my one chance to like catch this flight. I don't know when there's going to be another repatriation flight straight out of Iquitos. It's like a direct flight. And so we just went and I don't know like how, like, I'm not sure what happened. I fell asleep. And then like at 6, 5, 36 in the morning, we're in Iquitos. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um and then it was just like a rush to get to my, the place I had been staying, this little like office apartment place, shower and just pack up my essentials and get to the airport. And um, it was just, yeah, I was running on a lot of adrenaline and didn't really process how, how bizarre just like the whole, the whole journey back had been down the road, not on this particular project, but you are excited to be able to do more work like um, you have, you had done more freely before COVID um, in the future? Definitely. I I really like field work. Um, I think I like the fact that it keeps me on my feet a lot. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I do very well with like a lot of strict structure. So like, because things come up while I'm in the field and I have to kind of like adapt I like that and I like being outside too I find it really rewarding just like interacting with plants and people and like just being immersed in it. Before you uh, started your dissertation actually going out and doing the field work were you kind of more on the side that you were gonna do um, like the evolutionary relationship, the genetic, um, you know, makeup of these communities of plants and the morphology and all of that. And then um, like communicating with the people kind of drew you also to the plant human er, interactions or was that always like part of it all together before you started? That was always part of it. Like I've always been really drawn to like people plant interactions and just kind of looking at like explicitly looking at like human and human participation in our environment as an ecological force I think um up until recently oftentimes like like the academic literature just the way we like perceive ourselves has been to like kind of remove humans from the environment so I I was really like I really wanted to explore these interactions in a non-domesticated species for that reason. 
because I think like domestication is like one extreme of a spectrum and then we have like wild plants but like what is this like in between space and like how have humans been a part of this you know like spectrum I suppose um so that's always been um one of my interests and it was just trying to find a manageable species that like I felt like comfortable like studying during my PhD um that fit those criteria that I was looking for right yeah like uh how accurate is it to say anything is really wild right like exactly absent of human interaction yeah 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 I think there's like um this like false notion of the Amazon and like a lot of forests is being pristine when like that's not really true it's like humans have been here (laughs) for a really long time and have been interacting with these forests yeah, it's like in California, um, you know, with fire management, we're figuring out how important it was to have people um, actively managing the forests. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we're running out of time on the interview. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? I think the aspect of my research that I like, like, find most rewarding, and that like I'd like to stress is just like how much there is to learn from like non-traditional like non-academic settings like I learned so much just like on the like on the ground in the field just through my like interactions and a lot of that has like really like helped how I like how I shape my research so you know I I think there's like knowledge to be learned like everywhere and not just in textbooks so yeah definitely thanks so much for that uh today I've been speaking with Giovanna Figueroa from the Department of Integrative Biology and we've learned a lot about her really cool uh work in the field in the Amazon rainforest in Peru uh it's been so much fun talking to you Giovanna thanks it's been great talking to you too tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates